As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. And when I say I am so excited for today's guest, those of you who follow me on social media would have seen that I was in a conference in Montreal recently. And I went to a panel on imperialism with a good friend of mine, Dr. Bikram Gill. And one of the panelists is our guest today, Professor Dr. Radhika Desai. And when I say I was left floored, by her presentation and subsequently my reading of her work. So when I say it's about to be a dope conversation, welcome to the Malcolm Effect for the first and I hope won't be the only time, Professor. How are you? I'm very well and thanks so much for having me, Mamadou. It's a great pleasure. It's a great privilege. No, the pleasure and privilege is all mine. It's all mine. So I want to speak about all things imperialism. And one of the things at the conference you said, and I quoted on my Twitter, actually, you said people say, and I'm paraphrasing, that imperialism as an analysis has been exhausted. And you say in response to that, postmodernism has been exhausted as an analysis. So my question is to you then, why is it in your understanding of global politics? Does the analysis of imperialism still remain relevant? Well, I would say that uh, the analysis of imperialism has always been relevant. I mean, in my work, in my book, Geopolitical Economy, and in my new book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War, A Geopolitical Economy, which, by the way, if anybody's interested, is available open access, which means everybody gets the PDF for free. Anyway, in these books, one of the things I insist on is that in order to understand international relations, the key dynamic is imperialism and anti-imperialism. And that goes for all parts of the world. It it isn't just that, you know, in Europe, you have a Westphalia system. And unfortunately, these people, these Europeans and their offshoots are a little bit imperialist towards the rest of the world, which term remains a kind of vague. And for the postmodernists, it's largely a cultural affair. No, right from the beginnings of capitalism, because capitalism was contradictory, which means that it could never be contained within a society. It always made societies in which capitalism was born and which in which capitalism emerged and arose, it made those societies expansionist from the word go, which is why the leading capitalist countries ended up with the biggest empires, larger than any that history has ever known, and which they proceeded to subjugate economically. Yes, of course, they also subjugated them politically, ideologically, and various ways culturally. But the economic subordination is the most important and key moment in this and so you've you've always so and 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 then resistance to this imperialism which initially incidentally was also like the initial resistors to the domination for example of britain on the world market were actually other countries which eventually became imperialist i'm thinking of germany i'm thinking of japan i'm thinking of the united states so these countries resented the domination of britain over the world market they undertook to industrialize themselves 
in opposition to such domination uh, in order to resist such domination so that they were not going to be subordinated to Britain. They were not going to be the hewers of wood and drawers of water for British industry. They were not going to just supply them with raw materials, etc. They were going to industrialize themselves. So going back to those days, which goes back to the late 19th century and right up until today, you cannot understand international relations without understanding imperialism. So think about it this way. What kind of international relations are we taught uh, in our you know, uh, p- political science and other departments? What kind of international political economy are we taught, which does not put imperialism front and center? This is the question that emerges. Absolutely. And I guess directly onto that then, given that postmodernism with its anti-Marxist orientation has gripped the minds of so many today in the academy, why does postmodernism then fail to adequately assess the global condition? Well, I think what postmodernism has done is it has tended to culturalize everything. So one of the things that uh, one of the implications of what I've just said is that, of course, in any kind, any understanding of the real international relations of the world, which I call geopolitical economy, you have to understand nations as material, both when nations are being imperialist over other nations and when nations are resisting the imperialism of other nations. So in both cases, nations are central to this category. But for most, the overwhelming majority of postmodernism, imperialism is a cultural matter and nations are themselves also only cultural. The only reason, according to them, that we have nations is because, you know, uh, we speak different languages or eat different foods and so on and so forth. And most of what passes for postmodernism seems to want to sort of, you know, revel in the whatever superficial explorations of these cultures and so on, completely forgetting the fact that that the key to imperialism and anti-imperialist resistance is economic. Imperialism wants to create a was wants to create and maintain a complement an economic complementarity between the high value producing economies of the of the imperialist countries their higher technological level of development their industrialization etc etc also complementarity between that on the one hand and the the low value production of cheap raw materials cheap manufactured goods of the dominated countries. So this is the mechanism of imperialism, whereas the mechanism of anti-imperialism is equally economic. It's not just about shaking off the cultural domination of the West. It's about creating your own economy, which rejects the complementarity demanded and offered by imperialism and seeks instead to industrialize at subordinated societies, often behind protectionist walls, often using industrial policy and so on, and seeks to create a similarity as against complementarity. It creates a similarity of productive structures, which means that it seeks to industrialize and bring to a high technological level previously subordinated societies. And of course, some of the best examples of such resistance have, of course, been socialist countries. The Soviet Union did it back in the 20th century. And today, China is in the forefront of such an achievement. Thank you so much. And that, again, leads beautifully to my next question. In a time where we see China is moving towards countries or encouraging countries to now do trade deals in their own currencies or other commodities, in effect, moving towards a world of de-dollarization. My question then becomes, is multipolarity 
inherently good? Isn't and is it itself the goal? Is it itself an objective good? Well, uh, yes, I would say that obviously multipolarity isn't socialism, but it is the necessary road to socialism. So let me explain. In the dominant accounts of the world order, international relations, international political economy, the, you have two choices in terms of how to understand the evolution of the world order. One is sort of the, the narrative of free trade and globalization and so on. And the idea there is that uh, free trade and globalization have have essentially created a seamlessly united world economy in which its division into national states and national economies does not matter. We are living in a world of globalization and blah, blah, and so on. So the world is seamlessly unified by markets. The second option you have is that the world is also seamlessly unified, but this unity and uh, the and the expansion of the productive expansion of the world economy is provided by a hegemonic country so this is hegemony stability theory so these this theory argues that yes you know markets cannot operate on their own you need states but only one state is enough. So both of the and, 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 and so this state, this leading state, whether it is Britain in the 19th century or the United States in the 20th century, the idea is that these states have unified the world uh, into and created a seamless economy, seamlessly united world economy. And these narratives I call cosmopolitan narratives. And as opposed to them, I propose an anti-cosmopolitan understanding of international relations, of geopolitical economy, as I call it, in which nations are material. And by the way, if you're interested, we can talk about this as well. But I argue that Marx and Engels and their descendants mm -hmm. were not, they did not think that the only divide in the world is class. They thought class and nation were equally the material products of the development of capitalism. But we'll bracket that. Let me come back to, to, to the geopolitical economy, which takes the materiality of nations seriously, which puts the dialectic of what Trotsky used to call uneven and combined development. But you can find this idea already in Marx and what we are also calling imperialism and anti-imperialism. This, it puts that center stage in understanding the world order. And when you do that, what you also see is that while on the one hand there is the dialectic between imperialism and anti-imperialism, they are not co-equal forces. Imperialism reaches a peak in about 2014 and since then imperialism has been in decline. And in fact, in any case, the expansion of capitalism, the dialectic of uneven and combined development has created a situation in which the world, which had already become multipolar back in the late 19th century, when countries like the United States, Germany, Japan began challenging Britain's domination over the world market, they had their industrialization had already made the world multipolar. And since that time, we have seen the ex further expansion of multipolarity. And in incidentally, of course, with the, uh, or not so incidentally, perhaps necessarily, what we have also seen is since 1917, it is not just other capitalist forms of development that has created multipolarity, but uh, uh, socialism or uh, the attempt to build socialism first in the Soviet Union, then in China and then a few other countries, these attempts, they, so they have added a socialist form of what Trotsky called combined development or, or state-led industrialization, etc., as a form of anti-imperialism. So these uh, forces have, so instead of 
you know, expanding markets or successive hegemonies, the real story of the world capitalist economy is that of expanding multipolarity. And that process is now massively accelerating, particularly with the onset of this. Well, it was accelerating anyway in the 21st century. Remember, Jim O'Neill coined this term Mm -hmm. BRICS already at the start of the 21st century. So we have seen that over the last 20 years, particularly again since the 2008 financial crisis, because the decline of the West has become manifest just at the same time as the rise of China and some other economies has been accelerated. And so so just to conclude on this point, multipolarity is benign, is is good for the vast majority of the people of, of the world because it represents the spread of productive power across the world economy. That is to say, today, we, it's no, the world is no longer dominated by a small number of imperialist powers, but it represents the emergence of other uh, contender powers who have, which are challenging the dominance of the imperialist West of the United States. And of course, the rise of these powers can only expand the options for those countries that are still left behind, which means that they will be able to industrialized to reject forms of imperialism etc that much more easily if they so wish if their societies are geared to doing that if their governments are geared to doing that thank you so much again for that elaborate answer something else that stuck out that stood out to be from what from the panel from the conference was and i'm paraphrasing again you said something on the, along the lines of liberal democracy increasingly concentrates power amongst a few If we want to talk about authoritarianism, let's start there. So my question then becomes, given the moves that China's making right now, but people even on the left will call countries like China and other countries under sanctions as authoritarian, as a way to scare people off, like, oh my God, do you think China's going to be any better than the USA? What would you say to those people on the left who have those sentiments? Well, you know, uh, I guess I would uh, I would uh, expand on the point you made. But before that, you know, the one that you were quoting me on. But before doing that, let me just say that capitalists, the leading capitalists and imperialist societies of our time call authoritarian those governments that wish to and that do restrict the power of capital, both domestic and international, in order to promote a form of economy that is more that creates more broad-based prosperity than would be possible if you did not restrict the prerogatives of capital. So the point is not that they are restricting the prerogatives of ordinary people. President Biden or uh, Rishi Sunak or Olaf Scholz or Emmanuel Macron, they don't care about ordinary people in Venezuela or Cuba or China or where have you. What they care about is that these countries, in order to achieve a broad-based prosperity, an economy that is productive, sustainable, creates a broad-based prosperity for ordinary people, in order to achieve that, they must, to some extent at least, restrict the power of capital, both domestic and international. And this is what they resent. I think there's an interesting analogy which you can, which I, I think we should bring in. You know, there is this old word tyrant. You know, a tyrant is someone who is a tyrannical, yes. restricts <laughs> powers of people, and so on. If you go back to classical uh, Rome, 
the 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 name tyrant was actually the name of rulers who often arose amidst the regular debt crises that Rome used to have when a small number of people held the vast majority of people in hock because they owed them money and so on so there used to be regular debtors revolts because you know if you can't pay back a debt you you know that they are usurious debts you they are unjust debts you shouldn't have to pay them so there would be these revolts and they would elect these tyrants who would then implement policies that were in favor of the majority majority of whom were debtors and against the interests of the minority of the creditors which then means that these creditors whom we seem to side with in this case called these guys tyrants and gave the word tyrant which originally did not have a negative connotation the negative connotation that it has today so this is exactly what the capitalist west is doing when it calls a uh, china or venezuela or cuba authoritarian they what they don't like is the fact that these con- countries in order to expand their freedoms of ordinary people the actual freedoms which includes economic freedoms in order to expand opportunities for the, their countries they wish to restrict the power of capital so that's what's really going on and then yes so 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 so, so having said that i also would say uh, what you what you were quoting me on which is that if you look at our societies today precisely because in the leading what i call the leading neoliberal financialized capitalisms such as the us and the UK, Okay, which are in the for, in the forefront of this being neoliberal and and financialized, precisely because these countries have not restricted the power of the capitalist corporate elite, precisely because they have allowed the capitalist corporate elite to make super profits out of monopolies that they have, whether they are big pharma or software companies or arms production or what have you. and the big financial companies that have been so instrumental in creating so much inequality so the not restricting the power of capital in these societies has actually over the last 40 years of neoliberalism increased inequality relentlessly so then and on, on the basis of the economic inequalities we also then have social division and on the back of social division we have political ungovernability that's why you got phenomena like brexit and and trump and so on and in this context precisely because of these inequalities precisely because the governments are unable to provide ordinary people with something they can aspire to you have essentially uh, you we have created these societies which are politically uh, you know in the united states people are talking have been talking about civil war for the last half decade or so at least if not longer so this is the kind of dysfunction that has arisen and so in this context where especially when democracy all democracy is good for is essentially Uh, it's an electoral exercise in which whoever spends the most money wins which is what has happened for the last many decades in the united states what kind of democracy is that it's certainly not democracy for ordinary people because as far as they are concerned it doesn't matter who they vote for they get the same policies how democratic is that so we need you know if we are going to go everybody in in western countries who who thinks that our countries should go to war in order to promote democracy had better take a good look at the seamy side of democracy in these societies thank you so much thank you so much I have a few follow ups actually i guess i want to go back onto the point on when you said we bracketed marx and engels and the contradiction not just being class maybe we can unpack that a little bit 
you know, in the process of writing these books, you know, I published Geopolitical Economy in 2013. And more recently, last year, at the end of last year, uh, I brought out this other book, Capitalism, Coronavirus and War. And in the process of writing this in, uh, and, and proposing Geopolitical Economy as a new approach, I, of course, wanted to make it a Marxist approach. And I then in, began to sort of investigate what are the existing Marxist approaches. And I realized very quickly that Marxists themselves have essentially fallen into the two fallen for one of the two cosmopolitan discourses that I've just discussed, namely the discourse of globalization. You have many Marxists who endorse this and other Marxists who endorse the notion of US hegemony, etc. And I found that actually, if you really look at Marx's own work, and, and I had to, and in the process of writing these books, I've also ended up writing lots of articles uh, in which I try to get to the, the real Marx, so to speak. So what I find is that because, so, so what, has, what has happened in, in Western countries, particularly in Western Marxism, is that essentially going back to the late 19th century, when neoclassical economics emerged, and neoclassical economics emerged precisely as in opposition to various forms of socialist thinking and Marxist thinking that were already extant at that time. So instead of, of criticizing neoclassical economic, economics full frontally, exposing it for what it was, which is a bourgeois way of thinking, many Marxists, because they were already trained in neoclassical economics, ended up capitulating to it and following what Bukharin called a policy of theoretical reconciliation reconciliation with this. So instead, so they create, so, so essentially they abandon Marx's analysis of capital, which is of uh, essentially, as I say, Marx's analysis of capitalism as contradictory value production. And they ended up trying to fit Marx and Marx and Engels's work into the theoretical and methodological framework of neoclassical economics. I mean, to be sure, they did criticize neoclassical economics for ignoring things like exploitation, but they there were big limits to their criticisms and the extent to which they sought to sort of fit Marxism into that was a was much the greater effort. So in this context, most Marxists ended up accepting essentially a version of what's called Say's Law, which is essentially the idea that there are no demand problems in capitalism and more generally rejecting the idea of contradiction, which is central in Marx. And then also accepting another idea which is connected to that, which is the idea of comparative advantage. Marx criticized both Say's Law and comparative advantage quite bitingly. But these so-called Marxist economists ended up accepting that. So as a consequence, you have Marxisms that portray the world economy as a single, seamless, unproblematic, unified whole, or, you know, US hegemony and all these, accepting these cosmopolitan ideas. In reality, if you look at Marx's idea of capitalism as contradictory value production, the first thing that emerges from it is that precisely because capitalism is contradictory, it is inherently expansionist. It is inherently imperialist. And once you get once you insert that into the equation, then naturally you are also going to get the response to imperialism, just as class domination results naturally in the response of class struggle. So the bourgeoisie dominates, the capitalists dominate, and the working class resist. Similarly, when imperialist countries necessarily must dominate, try to dominate the rest of the world, the rest of the world is going to resist. And this dialectic is already there in Marx. You know, Marx and Engels, for example, say very early on in um, 
the debate on free trade, for example, they say they are criticizing uh, those who are criticizing their opponents. And they're saying that, you know, if these gentlemen do not understand how one nation can get rich by exploiting another nation, how are, how do we expect them to understand how one class grows rich by exploiting another class? You see right here, class and nation are set side by side as co-equal uh, divides that capitalism creates in the world. And so for Marx and Engels, you had to put the two together. And that's why I called my approach geopolitical economy, because it's not economics. Marx and Engels would have never dreamed of separating economics from the rest of society, from polity, etc. They studied something called political economy. Indeed, they did it critically, but still they were within that tradition. And that's the tradition we have to go back to, which is to understand society and capitalist society as a historically evolving whole in which both class struggle and international struggle, struggle between nations is a central part. And once you do that, then you have a proper understanding of how Marx and Engels understood capitalism operating, not just within countries, but internationally. Thank you so much. Christian? Yes, I think in that kind of, in that spirit of understanding Marx in the economics and economics is not some sort of section off discipline, something that is very conscious of society and truly should be understood as political economy. I wanted to turn to something you recently wrote. Well, recently, it was published in 2020. It was a paper that you co-authored with Michael Hudson called Beyond the Dollar, Creditocracy, a Geopolitical Economy. And I believe that's also open, openly available. Yes, it's anybody. open access. Yeah. Yes. You talk about the problematic that is understanding money as a commodity. And there's a quote from Marx in there that says, for coin, the road from the mint is also the path to the melting pot. In the course of circulation, coins wear down. The weight of gold fixed upon as the standard of price diverges from the weight which serves as the circulating medium. The history of these difficulties constitutes the history of coinage throughout the Middle Ages and in modern times down to the 18th century. Could you talk a little bit about the history of money, the way we should understand it and the crisis and problems that arise from the attempts to commodify? Sure. Gosh, this is a huge topic. So let me just begin with that point about Marx. So one of the other problems that, so I, I already said that, you know, these Marxist economists, they tend to think they do not take contradiction very seriously. So they do not take the expansionism of capitalism seriously. They And they also, therefore, tend to assume that international trade is somehow harmonious when in fact it is riven with international struggles as you see today uh, and as you have seen in the history of capitalism. So similarly there is another equally problematic assumption that many Marxist economists make about Marx which is they say that Marx had a commodity theory of money and my reaction to that is, you know what, folks, if you really think that Marx had, a, I mean, if Marx really had a commodity theory of money, let's throw out capital, let's throw out all the three volumes, throw, throw out all the works that Marx wrote on economics, because this is, it's simply not true. Money is not a commodity. So, so, so let me take a slightly circular way of understanding or slightly circuitous way of, of understanding this. Karl Polanyi, who is a very interesting writer, and uh, he himself thought that, he, you know, he himself said certain 
dismissive things about Marx and most people regard him as some kind of an alternative to Marx. But I've shown in my work that part of the, the chief reason why he ended up saying dismissive things about Marx was actually because the Marx he inherited was the Marx that had already been corrupted by the sort of policy of theoretical reconciliation that I've been talking about. So naturally, he did not accept this. But anyway, so but leave that aside. Polanyi has one, makes one very critical point. He says, land, labor, and money are not commodities. They uh, And because in capitalism, they are treated as commodities, this gives rise to a lot of problems. So he calls them fictitious commodities. And then it turns out that this notion, by the way, of fictitious commodities actually goes back to Ferdinand Tunis, who wrote the very famous book, called Community and Society, or sometimes it is referred to in English as well with its German title, which is Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft. Gemeinschaft being community, Gesellschaft being society. So in this, so so, so, so Polanyi says these three things are not commodities. Now, many people think this is some sort of innovation of Polanyi's, but this is not at all true. Actually, Classical political economy, up to and including Marx, already knew that land, labor, and money are not commodities. They are not commodities in because commodities are things that are produced for sale. In these cases, in the case of land, we don't produce it. It is not produced at all. It's just there. In the case of labor and money, insofar as they are produced at all, in the, in the sense that commodities are produced, they are not produced for sale. We don't have babies so that they can go and work for other people, etc. And and money is the an ancient social institution. It's a way of uh, essentially keeping accounts. It's a way, you know, if you give me a bushel of wheat at harvest and I give you several cans of beer, then, it, it, you know, we sort of keep accounts, roughly speaking, so that, you know, we, we sort of keep our relationship on an even keel. That's what money was supposed to be about. And in different societies, it has taken many different forms. And it originates essentially in forms of accounting going back to the earliest known, uh, earliest known forms of money that we have. So, they are not commodities, right? They are they are not produced for sale. And how do we know that classical political economy did not consider them as commodities? Well, very simple, because a large part of the work of classical political economy was to try to discover the special laws that governed the prices of these things. So how was the price of labor arrived at? How was the price of money arrived at? How was the price of land, namely rent, arrived at. These three things had prices which were arrived at in special ways. They were not at all arrived at in the ways in which the prices of most ordinary commodities were arrived at, which had to do with the cost of production, what Marx would call socially necessary labor, and so on and so forth. So people knew that. And so that's so, so money, therefore, is not a commodity. And what Marx says in that thing that you quoted, you know, people read, vol, you know, they say they have read all the volumes of Capital and blah, blah, and they know Marx has a commodity theory of money. Anyone who reads even just chapter three of volume one, which is the chapter on money, will know that Marx does not have a commodity theory of money. He argues that within countries, it's perfectly, you know, money can be fiat money, it is often fiat money. And he said, even when you have coined metal, so you have may have gold coins or silver coins or what have you, even when gold and silver coins are circulating, what gives them 
their character of money, what makes them widely acceptable is not that they have gold and silver in them, but the fact that they are minted by a sovereign. And what the sovereign does when he mints them and puts his head on his coins is he says, this coin is worth so much gold. And of course, as coins circulate, they tend to lose their gold contents. People take out little bits of gold, they get worn out, whatever. But as long as that imprimatur or the, of the, or the imprint of the sovereign is on there, that is a promise that you can take that coin, no matter how worn out it is, back to the mint and get a shiny new one with the requisite amount of metal in it. Now, what Marx says is that if this system already tells you that gold coins are already just symbols of themselves, which means that they can easily be replaced by things like paper notes that are merely symbolic. So this is the meaning. And so, 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 and, and Marx also says elsewhere, for example, there is no natural rate of interest, which is simply a way of saying that there is no rate of interest based on the cost of production of money, because basically there is no cost of production of money today. Money is produced when a bank decides to give you a loan, you, and you say, okay, I'm loaning you a thousand dollars to, I don't know, buy a new bicycle. Then they simply create an entry in a ledger. And that's it. The money has been created. There's hardly any cost of production to, to that. So in that sense, money is not. So, so, so then you have to think about this whole, the commodification of money in our time has essentially taken the form of allowing a small number of privately run banks to essentially issue money. And this is, you know, this is essentially they are franchised by the state, by the central bank in doing that. And by giving them this privilege, we the states have essentially allowed private interests to engage in a vast enterprise of creating mountains of debt. So that today we have a financial system which is geared towards creating unsustainable levels of debt, you know, because essentially if you debt keeps expanding because interest rates keep compounding, whereas people's incomes do not grow to the same extent, uh, especially when the economy is not doing well, then you are bound to get an overhang of debt. And today, as you know, our governments are indebted, households are indebted, even businesses are overly indebted. And all of this only serves a small predatory elite, which simply lives off interest. And what we need essentially is a is essentially a, a wiping out of this debt because these people have got enough from other you know from the debtors already and bulk of this debt needs to be wiped out and and essentially this private interest which gets rich at the expense of other people should be liquidated you know Keynes talked about the euthanasia of the rentier for example the rentier was is essentially today what we call the dollar creditocracy is essentially a vast rentier class Yes. In, in your response, I was actually going to uh, follow up and ask about Polanyi, especially the uh, the point about fictitious commodities. So I'm really glad you went down that and uh, already answered it. And I kind of have two follow ups to kind of to respond to that. I guess the first is I think you've really thoroughly described the problematics with understanding money as a commodity. But given that uh, land and labor are also fictitious com commodities, what are the problematics with with classifying those as such? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. is such an important question. I mean, obviously, with labor, the you know, the whole history 
of the labor movement has been a history of trying to decommodify labor by increasing the amount of regulations. You know, you cannot have child labor. You cannot ask somebody to work more than X number of hours. You have to pay them a certain minimum. You cannot, you know, ask them to work in certain types of working conditions, blah, blah, health regulations, etc. That whole history has been a struggle to try to achieve a certain at least try to impose certain limits on the commodification of labor. And, uh, of course, the fact that under neoliberalism, many of these these uh, limitations on the commodification of labor have been rolled back, have brought us to the situation where we are now, where so many people don't even have uh, proper jobs. They have what we may call jobs. They had, you know, part-time jobs with very bad pay, bad working conditions, you know, uh, uh, increasingly the idea of this gig economy Economy where you know you you don't even have proper uh, uh, jobs and wages. You essentially expect people who are who are in fact workers to, to you treat them like entrepreneurs, and therefore you know you don't even give them decent wages, etc. So that's the that's the commodification of, of labor and the and the consequences of that. And I would say that these are in many ways reaching some quite unbearable levels. I would say, of course, especially so in the third world, but in in the Western world as well. Uh, as for land. Uh, I would argue that, uh, and by the way, most Marxists have, Marx argued, Marx called for the nationalization of land as a part of the Communist Manifesto. And essentially, land should be nationalized. Uh, things like housing should be provided as part of a, you know, of a social package. The non-nationalization uh, of land, what it has done is it has again created a relatively small number of people who are landlords, whether they are urban landlords or rural landlords or what have you, but they are landlords and they live off rent, more or less directly. And of course, uh, in addition to that, the commodification of land has also encouraged the crazy rise in house prices, which of course also prices most uh, working people out of the housing market. And if, if they are uh, lucky or shall we say unlucky enough to buy a house, they end up buying an overpriced house. They pay an enormous amount for for what it is, in fact. And and so this, this is all of this is, uh, you know, again, the whole effort of trying to buy a house, of course, adds a new layer of ex oppression and exploitation upon the working class because they are not just exploited by the capitalist who employs them, but also by the rentier who either rents them land or the bank who lends them the money to buy their own house. So in all of these ways, I think that uh, the uh, commodification of land and labor and money has been extremely harmful. And I'll say one, one other thing as well, which I didn't manage to say earlier, and it's very important. When you have the level of financialization that we have right now, which is the vast explosion of financial activity, which is, of course, of two forms. One is, of course, indebting everything in sight, you know, every family, every every household, every government, every enterprise, and so on. And on the other hand, the inflation of asset bubbles, which we have seen particularly uh, since the 1990s, you had the stock market bubble and then the housing and credit bubbles, and now we have this everything bubble and so on. This, uh, in th this asset price increases, this combination, you know, the, the indebting and asset price increases, essentially they strangulate 
the productive economy. So if we were to have properly regulated labor, properly regulated land and properly regulated money, we'd be a lot better off. And what would properly regulated money look like? It would look like a financial sector which is geared towards investing in productive expansion. This is, by the way, the kind of financial sector we had during the so-called golden age in the 50s and 60s and 70s when most countries had capital controls, most countries ha had heavily regulated financial sectors. In fact, so heavily regulated, they, the financial uh, interests complained about financial repression. But that was a good thing because when you give too much freedom to the to the financial sector they engage in asset price speculation and in expanding debt and what you need to do is in fact to invest in production and when you invest in production and you make wise investments in production then the repayment of a relatively small amount of interest on a on loans is not a big deal because you have invested in expanding productive capacity or expanding incomes and the payment of interest is not a big deal whereas right now what we have is a financial sector that is strangulating production that is preventing incomes from expanding so that just so, so they are in a sense putting society in that pincer between expanding indebtedness and inability to expand income sufficiently to pay off this debt so this is what financialization does i'm so glad you uh you went in that direction because that was actually gonna be you know kind of my follow-up to ask about the financial system that currently exists now and even the history of financial systems, because as you referenced, right, the U.S. at some point, their financial system was geared towards investing in production. But I, I would like to ask if you could expand a little bit more on that history and how that history surrounds kind of the, the two world wars within the, within the 20th century and how the various financial systems, not just of the U.S., but other actors and other nations in the world, right, as you, as you yeah. have said earlier, right, taking... Uh, nations very and seriously yeah uh, sure agents could you talk about that history please yeah in fact you know that's a really great question and i've done some work recently particularly on the work of rudolf helferding who wrote a very famous book in the early 20th century called finance capital and a lot of people when they just think i mean most people don't even read the book right but they think that finance capital must have been about a phenomena which is like what we are experiencing right now the financialization we are experiencing right now but nothing could be further from the truth what hilferding called finance capital was these sorts of industrial sectors which were you know which emerged in germany so hilferding's main reference point for what he called finance capital occurred in germany so in the second industrial revolution you had you had a vast vast advance in technology and this advance in technology meant that the second industrial revolution was about heavy industry and heavy industry meant very very large investments were needed to even set up industrial enterprises and this meant that banks had to move from providing credit just for commerce to providing credit for investment and the industrial in the sorry the financial sectors of these societies germany the united states japan were geared to do precisely that and that is what hilferding called finance capital meanwhile he in this book he actually explicitly contrasts this finance capital of the new industrializers with the 
financial sector of of the united kingdom of britain which was having the first industrial revolution did not have very high investment did not require very large amounts of investment which meant that individual fortunes were enough to get industries going in that first industrial revolution which was focused on textiles and other light industrial products whereas the second industrial revolution was based on a uh, heavy industrial products so in that sense so so hilferding says that the british the you know early capitalism in britain inherited the feudal financial system and kind of adapted it you know expanded it to include commercial credit but did not really need to do much more than that so the british financial system was focused on short term credit and really was not for vast providing vast quantities of investment capital and so on what we call today patient capital so finance hilfeding's finance capital rests on a contrast between these two financial systems and in the united states so 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 what we now have to to bring the history back to the united states this is the kind of system you had and these are the kind this is the kind of financial sector that stood behind the creation of the federal reserve and so on and yes there were elements particularly because of the historic linkage between the american financial sector and the british financial sector there were some elements pulling in the direction of this kind of short term speculative type of finance that britain had and they you know they seem to get at the upper hand in the 1920s in particular and their activities directly contributed to the stock market bubble and then eventually of course the stock market crash and then what you got in the in the 30s is that it, during the depression under a uh, roosevelt there was a, an enormous amount of banking legislation because immediately after 1929 there was a whole series of bank failures so in order to deal with that in order to prevent bank failures in the future you got some quite restrictive banking legislation the centerpiece of which was the famous glass steagall act and the purpose of the glass steagall act was to essentially create a broad and stable financial sector so the vast majority of the banks which we which were called commercial banks in the terms of the legislation commercial banks were designed to take the deposits of the ordinary joe and jane the likes of you and me we put our little amounts of money that we have in the bank and the uh, the legislation provided for the creation of the federal deposit insurance corporation the fdic which has been in the news recently we can come back to that later but the fdic was supposed to essentially guarantee all deposits up to some maximum amount perhaps was it was lower in the past today it's 250000 so up to that amount your deposits were safe so the ordinary person could confidently go and put their money in any bank they so long as it was insured by the fdic and in return for getting the insurance from the fdic these commercial banks were heavily regulated they they had to invest at certain regulated interest rates they could not offer very high interest rates they were bound to lend to for 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 productive purposes and so on so there used to be an old joke you know they they, they said that these commercial banks were subject to the 363 principle of banking so what was the 363 principle of banking it was that you lend at 3 sorry you 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 borrow at 3% you lend at 6% and you go play golf at 3 o'clock every afternoon which 
implies that this kind of banking was a rather stable and boring job. Now, so that was the commercial bank. So in return for federal deposit insurance, they were heavily regulated. And then you had a small number of so-called investment banks. They could do whatever they like. They could speculate in stocks, shares, whatever. They were not regulated. But if they went bust, that was their problem. The FDIC was not going to come and rescue them. It was not going to come and rescue their depositors. Nothing like that. So this separation of the Glass-Steagall Act essentially provided the United States with a very stable banking system from the 1930s into the 1970s. Now, in the 1970s, you began to see some problems, particularly because of relatively high rates of inflation and also then interest rates going up. So this, in especially with Paul Volcker raising interest rates to up to 20%, this created a whole lot of problems for banks. And in this period, from this period onwards, the problems that the, you know, the problems the banking sector encountered because the regulation to which they were subject had become dated, this problem was attacked essentially not by re-regulating, saying, okay, let's try to re-regulate so that the same purposes are achieved, but in the new context, the a systematic bias towards deregulation set in. So from that point onwards, you have seen a trend towards deregulation, which was there to some extent already under Paul Volcker when he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And then once Alan Greenspan became the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve in 1987, he was a much more determined deregulator. And he deregulated the banking system quite massively, supporting in the end. So, you know, within about a dozen years after he became uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, he also stood behind the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in 1999. And of course, that laid the basis for the vast amounts of lending that took place in the in the 2000s laying the basis of for the for the housing and credit bubbles which eventually burst in 2008 and since then so after 2008 a lot of uh, there was a lot of fluttering and pronouncements being made about how they were going to re-regulate the banking sector and everything nothing like that happened the Dodd-Frank legislation that was supposed to be somehow some kind of a reinstatement of Glass-Steagall was nothing of the sort in fact all all we have seen is that uh, apart from a certain amount of increase in the reserves that banks were required to keep, the banks have been allowed to continue speculating. Now, the big commercial banks are also speculating in a big way. In fact, the little investment houses have been completely wiped out because what Glass-Steagall did is it, it allowed commercial banks with their vast, enormous, astronomical sums of deposits to enter into the speculative markets and so on. So that's what you've seen. And so at the present moment, the American financial structure is exceedingly fragile. I would, you know, there are some people out there who are claiming that the banking crisis is over, but it has only begun. Thank you for that. That was excellent. And I guess it leads really nicely into my last question. I have quite a few other questions, but love the opportunity to maybe have you again. And I wanted to, for the sake of our listeners' uh, attention spans and our time here today, I wanted to close out kind of with this uh, last question. Which is, as you're pointing out, right, the American financial system has 
found itself within a current state as that is a state of real fragility. However, as you said before, right, there are other nations to consider, and therefore not all other nations as it stands today has the same kind of financial uh, system as the U.S. And so it's important to note, you know, as of as of late, right, the BRICS, an ac- acronym representing the nations of Brazil, Russia, China, India, and South Africa, consists of the world's five lead- leading emerging economies. And this was first identified in 2001 by Goldman Sachs economists, that nations within this grouping are moving away from the dollar and moving towards other currencies. And you know, not just them, you know, there are other nations that are moving away from the dollar as a, as a system. You know, Brazil has recently agreed to trade in the yuan with China. Uh, you know, what does this mean for the world geopolitically? What do you forecast in the coming years, you know, keeping in mind the transformations of these financial systems? Yeah, no, that's another, I mean, that's really one of the most important questions of our time, isn't it? And now we are living in a time when some quite mainstream people who you would not have expected would have said such things are are themselves proclaiming the demise of the dollar system, the coming demise of the dollar system. And I'm thinking of, you know, people who have generally, uh, you know, sort of big bankers and, and, and so on, who have generally tended to argue that, you know, the dollar system is going to continue forever. In my own work, I mean, for me, this is a kind of a, a really interesting moment because I have been arguing for a long time, certainly going back to my 2013 book, Geopolitical Economy, that the dollar system has never served the world well. The, the dollar system has never served the world stably and in a benign way as is normally as it's normally being portrayed. So there were all, always huge contradictions in the dollar system and now they are maturing in a big way. And I would think of them in think of the problem in two parts. Number one, the internal contradictions of the dollar system are mounting. And what I mean by that is that basically, you know, in 1945, the United States essentially nixed Keynes's ideas for an international clearing union and a multilaterally agreed currency called Banco, which would be used to settle imbalances only between central banks. It would not be a currency that you and I would use to, you know, buy a chocolate bar or a restaurant meal. It would simply be used between central banks in order to settle international imbalances. And this would work in a context of strict capital controls and all that. There were it was actually a wonderful scheme. We should talk about that sometime. But anyway, the United States did not want that. It wanted to make its own currency, the world currency, for for certain privileges that this would bring to the United States. And so the or, so it simply nixed uh, the alternative arrangements and imposed the dollar on the world. Although even at that time, the United States power was not so great that it could just get away by imposing the dollar. And it had to promise to exchange the dollar for gold at the current price, which was at the time $35 for an ounce of gold. So it was linked to gold. But this system very quickly disintegrated in 1971. Nixon had to break the dollar's link with gold. And since that time, if the dollar has seemed to somehow continue to exist as the world's money, it has been at the expense of vast amounts of financialization. So that essentially, the United States has tried to make the dollar, you know, the United States economy is not in a great shape. So the dollar is not inherently attractive for trade reasons. So then the dollar has been made attractive by essentially, the United States has opened a vast casino in which the rest of the world, the elites of the rest of the world are invited to put their money. But even this system, 
so so this is this is what accounts for the vast increase in financial activity which has been like a bed of hot air holding up the dollar but now this bed of hot air is also collapsing and there are a number of signs of that one of them is that the 2007-8 was the peak of international flows into the dollar system since then these flows have collapsed and they have not recovered they still remain about half of the level that you had in 2007-8 and that means that in order to keep asset markets high you know the prices of assets high the federal reserve has itself had to intervene in asset markets in order to prop up the value of assets but the rest of the world is now increasingly not involved in this increasingly the holders of these assets whether it is us treasuries or various derivatives or bonds or various shares and stocks and so on they are chiefly their holders are more and more a narrowing circle of us entities and individuals so so that's part, that's one part and and right now the federal reserve is in a bind because if it raises interest rates as it needs to do to combat inflation which is putting downward pressure on the dollar then it is going to bring down the financial house of cards on which the wealth of the elites whom the federal reserve really serves relies so it can it must raise interest rates but on the other hand it cannot raise interest rates and that's the bind it's in and that's the internal contradictions of the dollar system externally what you are now seeing is that because of the rise of china in particular i'm going to leave the other brics countries out of it a little bit because you know i have to say that russia south africa brazil and to a certain extent india as well do not have the level of capital controls they need to have uh, they are still participating too much uh, i think more than they should in this dollar system but one hopes that this will change very soon but certainly china china is has grown as much as it has because it has the type of financial system that hilferding admired which he called finance capital which we were just talking about whereas the other guys other countries that have engaged in more deregulation than they should in my humble opinion but let's hope this reverses itself but china has grown china has become in trade terms very important and so increasingly for trade purposes china is you know china today trades is a is a leading trading partner of more countries in the world than the united states is so increasingly the renminbi will be used for trade purposes and yes where china agrees the currency of other countries will also be used there is also some discussion of creating a bankor like currency obviously it won't be universal because for that the united states and the european countries would have to agree and at the moment there is no sign that they are going to agree but certainly on a regional level perhaps they can create such a multilaterally created currency and so and and in terms of investment funds china is increasingly a source of finance internationally for infrastructure investment and all forms of investment so in these ways the dollar centrality the dollar system centrality to the world economy is rapidly declining and of course needless to say the weaponization of the dollar system particularly with the sequestering of uh, russian reserves but also remember they had sequestered earlier venezuela's reserves afghanistan's reserves so this kind of behavior is not going to inspire much confidence if you want to run an international financial system you have to run it in a neutral way you cannot just you know use it in order to promote your own foreign policy objectives whenever you like but that's what the united states is doing today and it's not going to work
It's in fact a boomerang. It's it's proving counterproductive. Uh, but at the same time, the United States, which at the present moment is trying to essentially is is fighting for the to keep the last vestiges of its former dominance over the world economy by through these means. But of course, these very means are the ones that are undermining it further. So the United States has is really again caught in a bind as well. So this is the scenario that we are looking at and why we are increasingly talking about the demise of the dollar system. Thank you so much. And what you said speaks to what Marco Rubio so arrogantly said recently that, you know, we can, we can, we're going to stop thinking about sanctioning countries. <laughs> so <laughs> arrogantly says. <laughs> but this has been a masterclass, Professor Radhika Desai. Thank you so much. I've learned so much. I'm sure our listeners will have too. Please like, comment, subscribe, and I implore all of you to check out the brilliant work our guest is doing. And please reach out to me as well. I'm more than happy to provide any links. And I do hope we can get you on again on The Malcolm Effect. Well, I <laughs> would love that, Mamadou. Thank you very much. Thank you, Christian. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, please like, comment, subscribe. Take care and peace out. <laughs>